The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. No sooner is the gang finally getting settled back into life after their trek to Florida than they get a message from that other annual flying adventure. They reminisce a little more about the trip to Lakeland, cheer on the enthusiasm of a future pilot, give us a warning about the compromise that's not really, and mourn the still unrepaired damage of Hurricane Katrina. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 27, Cannonball! Now, now, Jack, the one thing, though, you have not mentioned... What's that? ...about, about the, the, the round trip down the Here we go. So I made up my mind, and I'm getting naked and doing a cannonball into the water. <laughs> Perhaps too much information. Avgas will be involved, as will copious amounts of tang and fresh coffee. Smoke them if you got them. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 27. Here we are back again and uh, kind of all getting getting rested and, and recovered from uh, our various uh, injuries and adventures, huh? So, uh, God, I mean, we, we spent so much time looking forward going to Florida, and now we've been back, whatever, a week and a half, two weeks, and it just seems like a long time ago. Still paying the price, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, there's that, too. There's that, too. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's a calendar thing. Yeah. Well, it's a calendar thing. It's, it's yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a mindset thing, too. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We have a fairly intimate gathering this morning in the virtual hangar. Uh, with us today, of course, is uh, Jeb Burnside. Jeb talking to us from his home in his home office in Springfield, Virginia. Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributor contributing editor to Avweb Biz. Good morning, Jeb. Good morning, Jack. And Dave, good morning to you. And uh, of course, good morning to all of our listeners. Yeah. So, and also with us, uh, as uh, Jeb just mentioned, Dave Higdon. Dave is talking to us this morning from Wichita, Kansas. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor of Kit Planes Magazine, and also a uh, what is he? I can't read my own notes here. <laughs> another another freelance writer and editor. And how many dozens around, of times have I guy. read this here? And uh, I'm sorry, Dave. I didn't mean to. Yeah, you know, I gotta get you get your little oh, plug okay. in here. You are you are the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. I actually, you know, I I shouldn't. I'm I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. <laughs> I had never until the other day come across a copy of, of uh, World Aircraft Sales Magazine. And uh, um, I was actually sitting, when, when Jeb and I were on our way back from, from Florida, and we stopped in, uh, in Newport, Newport News to uh, pick up uh, a passenger. And uh, I was hanging out in the, uh, in the pilot lounge waiting for Jeb to come back. And, uh, and, I saw, and they had a whole big rack of magazines. Uh, and, and one of them was, uh, was World Aircraft Sales. And I, so I, was take, took a, I almost stole it, but I decided not to. Steel. Actually, that's what it's there for. Is yeah, it really? It is there, what it's there for. There were yeah. two there, and I thought that might be the case, but, you know, then... Yeah, depending on the size of the FBO, they might get a stack of five or ten yeah. uh, every month, uh, courtesy of the publishing company yeah. over in, uh, in, in England. And Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Jeb. Uh, all the aviators in the sky and, uh, and, and those hanging around the... Uh, the, the machine listening to us uh, when you listen to us. Hope everybody's getting a little aviating in this spring. Absolutely. Indeed. Absolutely. Uh, and I am. You have to have your IFR ticket today. 
here. And I, and I am Jack Hodgson, up here in Boston, Massachusetts. I am a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. So you're saying the weather's... Uh, it's overcast oh, yeah? uh, here, um, 60-ish. Um, no, no. well, 10% rain in the forecast, but um, uh, just a dry front kind of trying to poke through. And uh, supposed to be nice and warm and sunny tomorrow, so I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Well, I'll tell you, spring has really taken hold up here in New England. It, it's just beautiful today, and uh, although it was overcast yesterday morning, um, it turned uh, uh, sort of uh, scattered clouds. And uh, uh, my dad and I actually took a drive up to uh, – our, our family has a has a vacation home up in New Hampshire. And uh, so we took a ride up there and uh, got one of the boats running and uh, took a little boat ride out in the lake. And uh, it was – as you can tell, I didn't get an awful lot of work done yesterday. But it was a very nice day. <laughs> well, so. it's been a few, about three, four straight perfect soft IFR days. It'd be great for working uh-huh. on your ticket here in uh, south southeast Kansas and uh, uh, or south central Kansas. And, and 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 this morning's another good example of it. Uh, it's overcast somewhere up there. We've got had a light fog in the neighborhood most of the morning, yep. uh, and it's just about a still, you know, it's one of those six or seven days that we get in right. Kansas every year that are below five knots. It's just right. about dead calm. It's kind of like that here. It would be a great day to go out and, and get some approaches in. Um, I don't know how high the ceiling is. I presume it would require an approach. Um, uh, I, I, the real question, of course, is how thick this is and what the tops are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. You know, it just it occurs to me, and this isn't on our list, but Jeb, I, I was going to ask you about this, and I think our, our listeners might be interested too. Um, it, it was, it, I'm not an IFR pilot, so that on one level, flying with you down to Florida and back was interesting, just to kind of observe the, the IFR procedures, which I'd sure. seen before. Sure. But uh, but that's that's a, a really interesting education to kind of be exposed to that. But the part that I'm actually still a little confused by is the procedures, the things you had to do in order to fly back into the DC area. Ah, okay. you know, when we when we were departing from uh, Newport News, uh-huh. you were talking to uh, the I guess ground, and I thought you were filing an IFR uh, plan. Yeah. Um, and and then later on, I realized no, we weren't IFR. Uh-huh. It, how, what is, is that? Yeah, just there, basically a glorified uh, there, filing there a flight t- plan, or what was that well, all about? Well, there were there were two things going on in that in that particular flight. Um, you didn't see it. Um, um, but I, after uh, I got back uh, from picking up my passenger, uh, I stepped back outside and, and made a cell phone call to the flight service station. That's and, where you disappeared okay. to. We were wondering okay. what happened. Yeah. And filed uh, what is known as an ADIS VFR flight plan, ADIS entry flight plan, uh, to get back into Manassas. Um, that... Uh, is kind of a uh, that particular kind of flight plan is kind of a bastard child, in that to uh, say the least. To say the least, it's, it's neither IFR nor is it a um, a search and rescue type of VFR flight plan. It is basically a notification to um, air traffic control that this aircraft with this pilot and these number of people will be entering the Washington ADIS from this point and landing at another point. Um, it is required by NOTAM for the Washington DC airspace. It is not the same as the uh, um, flight restricted zone or the freeze as we call it here. 
uh, which allows access to the so-called DC-3 airports, which are within um, a very close proximity to downtown Washington. Um, in the specific instance, I went ahead and filed that flight plan telling ATC that I was going to enter uh, from this point and land at, at, at Manassas. Um, when we were Manassas the, isn't in the in, isn't inside the ADIS, is it? It it is inside the ADIS. It is it, inside it, the ADIS. Yes, well inside actually. It is not inside the freeze. There's two huh. different two different yeah. airspace constructs. Just for people who don't know, you told us what freeze stands for. ADIS is of course Air Defense Identification Zone. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, and and there are air defense there are ADIS is around the country, but the DC one is kind of particularly strict. Is that a good way to say it? It's that is, bastard. Well, there is no other ADIS in the CONUS airspace. All of the other ADISs are uh, uh, basically uh, international airspace. Uh, coming in from overseas. Okay, like offshore, uh, like if you're yeah, out of the ocean. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The uh, but on the ground in uh, in Newport News, as we were starting up, uh, what I basically did was uh, request a, tr a squawk code and, and flight following out of that airspace to t uh, talking to Norfolk Approach. Did that on the ground rather than try to negotiate all that in the air. Um, and when I got. Norfolk has a relatively small portion of the airspace on the route from Newport News back to Manassas. Uh, my basically my first radio call to Potomac when Norfolk handed me off. This is all under VFR flight following. Mm -hmm. But uh, my first basic call to Potomac uh, was to check in, and then to ask the controller to verify that he had a flight plan on me uh, right. for a dis entry. The trick there is twofold. One, um, in the past, if you didn't have the flight plan on file, they almost all the time required you to go back and talk to the flight service station, which is a pain in the butt mm -hmm. um, because you're, there's different frequencies. There's, there's, uh, shall we say, uh, an uneven level of service when you're trying to contact a flight service station while you're airborne. Um, the other trick, though, is lately they've kind of done a wink and a nod thing, whereas if the, the pilot um, forcefully states that he filed an ADIS VFR flight plan, even though the TRACON cannot find it, uh, they will kind of manually enter one for you and give you a squat code and let you in. It's a kind of a mother may I uh, deal, right. and uh, uh, the time has long since passed for it to uh, go away. Yeah. It was interesting. It was a cool yeah. flight. I mean, the whole thing was a cool flight. My favorite, I guess one of my favorite moments of that flight was uh, we were over the Potomac. We were actually in the vicinity of, uh, what was it, Quantico. Uh, right. Uh, and uh, what we, we were must have been about 3,500 feet. And uh, and you pointed out a, a C-17 right. that was way down below us, uh -huh. perhaps working the pattern at Quantico. And, yeah, he uh, was, we, we were descending out of 6,500, and, and the local controller suggested we stop the descent at 3,500. The C-17 had come in from the south-southwest, and I'd, he'd been pointed out as traffic to me, and I kind of watched him come in. Uh, basically drifted down below us um, and did... Um, uh, wasn't really an overhead pattern and wasn't really a full approach either uh, but basically what from what I could tell kind of flew over Quantico uh, did a teardrop turn descending and lined up for the for the uh, final approach to that runway at yeah. Quantico 
uh, that's kind of where I lost track of him and, and got busy and didn't see them land. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I was sort of watching too, although we were right over Quantico, so we lost sight of the right. runway for a while. But uh, and, and I actually posted on uh, on my Flickr account uh, a picture that I took out the window of that oh, really? C-17 way down below us. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the, in the now, show notes. Now, Jack, the one thing, though, you have not mentioned. What's that? About, about the, the, the round trip down the Here sun. we go. Okay, no, you're right. I'm sorry. I You know, yeah. I, and I know you're just kind of like, all right, you're tooting your horn a little bit, but this was cool. If we're talking, if we're thinking of the same thing, well, you go ahead. We neglected to mention both in the Sun and Fun episode and in the follow-up episode something that I think is very impressive. So we're flying into Sun and Fun. Is this what you're talking about? I think so. Okay, we're arriving at Sun and Fun. <laughs> we did the whole procedure thing. It's quite an experience. I, I've only flown the Oshkosh procedure like a couple of times. Oh, is this the Parker arrival? Yeah, so yeah. we're on the Parker okay. arrival into Sun and Fun uh, a couple weeks back. Um, we did the whole thing over the over the lake, which was kind of freaky. The only part of it that was even nearly freaky was the hold, and uh, and then they released us out of the hold, and we uh, approached in, and we're kind of following in trail with all the other aircraft, and uh, you, you you get into downwind, you get onto base, you get onto final. We're we're now approaching the runway, um, and. Uh, as we're starting to approach the uh, the touchdown point on the runway, the tower says, "I want you to you know keep it up longer and fly down the runway and land on the green dot, which is sort of the furthest or one of the further dots that they have you land on for for spacing and so forth." And so, not only did you, I was very impressed. You not only did a really terrific job of kind of you know comfortably making the airplane stay on the air and fly down the runway and so forth, but we actually, as we reached the uh, as we were reaching the green dot, you cut the power at precisely the right time. We settled in. And you, man, just kissed the ground right on that green dot. Full stall landing on the green. Full dot. stall, no, uh, no bounces, no ballooning. You just kind of set it right down on the green dot. And I have to well, tell you, you, you know, Jack, the, the the most consistent sex that man has in his life is with his Debbie. <laughs> so, congratulations. I'm, not, gonna, I'm not, not knowing anyone named Debbie except for the airplane. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> so, uh, I know. I mean, I think that uh, I, that's that's very cool. Now, I. Uh, Thank you, Jack. I, I have to say, that I, and this is this is one of the things that really makes me wish I owned my own airplane, because although there certainly is your inherent pilot skill involved here, uh, it, it's been my experience that the more familiar you are with a particular airplane, the the oh, the absolutely. better control you have over it like this. Um, another buddy of mine, when I've flown with him in his airplane, and he's a very high hour high time pilot as well, but uh, but you know, and but I know from just like occasionally getting the same rental airplane you know repeatedly that you kind of get the feel of it and uh um, oh, that was one of the lovely things about uh the eight years we had with our comanche uh we called her air comanche because we put about uh 1500 hours on her in in, in eight years and uh took her about everywhere we could reach uh-huh. uh, cancun cayman islands uh both coasts uh so much of it just gets to be so second nature right to your brain and your hand interface with the airplane mm-hmm. uh, what you reach out and do where you reach out and touch how you do it when you do it it—it uh, it, it really makes makes us look at our best yeah when when we're flying the airplane that we fly all the time at, at our at the best that we can fly it that's right 
And uh, I guess so, and and so in the case of that airplane and you and Annie, that would get, I guess make it a threesome, right? Uh, a lot of the times, yes, it was a three-way. Uh, so my applause to Jeb for nailing the green spot. Uh, thank you. It was really much. terrific. Um, you know, I really. How often do you get patted on the head for nailing a green spot? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> in public too. In front of a crowd. Uh huh. All right. Well, this is fun, but we've got stuff to talk about here. Uh, you know, no sooner are we back from Sun and Fun uh, than the uh, Oshkosh Notum appears, yeah. and uh, so da, everyone. Da, 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 da. Uh, everyone who's even considering going to Oshkosh this summer, going to Air Venture this summer uh, in Oshkosh, should uh, go out and grab the Notum and take a look. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Is there anything? Have you guys looked at it? Is there anything new, I, different? I have not. Uh, Let me open it up right here. Uh, took a glance at it, and you know, it still starts at ripping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so. Uh, there's just, usually a, a section in the front of it that highlights talks about any changes. changes. Yeah, let's yeah, see. Uh, changes for 2007 include procedure start on Friday. There's a new arrival ATIS frequency of 18.75. Uh, there is an IFR slot reservation confirmation process, which is not new uh, specifically to the Oshkosh node, but is new to the IFR slot reservation process itself. Right, it's a general uh, change. Right, it's a general change. Um, new landing area for rotorcraft and uh, exp- expanded flight service briefing annex hours. Mm-hmm. I don't know what specifically that means. Hopefully they'll be open past five. New rotorcraft landing area. Yeah. Really? I wonder where that's going to be. Does it talk about where I'm on the air? lasted right past that. Oh, I'm sure it does. Let's find out where it is. So while you're looking, the, 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 the lesson here is that uh, there are changes this year, and even those of you who have flown the arrival many times in the past, make sure you read the notum and bring sure, it along always, with you. Always. Always. Have uh, the, the notum. You should be familiar with it before you leave. You don't want to be trying to figure out where Ripon, bloody Wisconsin is. <laughs> you're five miles out and traffic's converging from about 360 degrees on the compass. And uh, you could well find out that that sudden shadow that uh, made you look feel really small is another airplane your size way closer than you want to be. Yeah. Yep. It's not clear. I don't know. Let's see. The quote, the AirVenture helipad and long-term helicopter parking are located on Pioneer Airport. Okay. Okay. Okay, so yeah. that's not necessarily for visiting, you know, kind of like uh, attendee helicopters. They, st- I guess, they're still doing that down at uh, at the ultralight area. Well, that's what it sounds like. That's what it. Yeah. It. it hmm. I, I. I. I don't know. Is yeah. quick, well, no. There's an ultralight home-built rotorcraft arrival departure procedure also. So I guess what we're talking about here is um, um, just a, uh, a maybe a. Uh, this is for transient helicopters. So, yeah, it looks like they're um, uh, talking about putting transients, day trippers, uh, using rotorcraft into uh, Pioneer Airport. Okay. Well, that kind of fits with yeah. the, the, the rotorcraft tours that operate out of there. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, pretty right. steadily right. throughout the day. Well, so, I'm, well, this is actually a good segue into the next item on the list here uh, is uh, that because I know that we're going to get a clarification on this from our friends at EAA who are uh, loyal listeners to the podcast, and we welcome their, their feedback. Um, they got in touch with us last week to clarify one thing that we were talking about about 
about the uh, LSA retractable, uh, what, what we described as a issue. repositionable yeah. gear. Uh, Dave, why don't you tell us what we what we sort of knew but didn't make sure. clear last time? Well, to, to tail end of uh, of uh, number twenty six, our guest and, and uh, light sport aircraft expert Dan Johnson chimed in that one of the things that came out of uh, the, the week during Sun and Fun was the uh, uh, a change in the rule. Uh, he characterized it as a proposed change in a rule in the light sport aircraft uh, uh, consensus standards uh, that will allow repositionable gear to be uh, uh, used on amphibious aircraft. Uh, a conflict in the original wording had kept uh, the FAA from, uh, made them reluctant to approve any amphibs where the gear went up and down, which is kind of indigenous to the amphib type. Uh, it, but the uh, change that Dan was speaking of was actually not a proposal. It was a direct-to-final rule issue exactly. from the FAA which means that it's in effect now, and uh, the, there's already a couple of aircraft that uh, are qualified under that. I think they'd been given exemptions initially, but now they uh, they are free to go forth, and, and other aircraft makers with amphib designs are free to go forth and can expect to get approval of the uh, the aircraft under the new new changes to the wording in the consensus standard that allow for repositionable gear on amphib light sport aircraft yeah. so it's all in all a good thing it's not something we have to wait on there's not a proposal there's not a uh, comment period and waiting for a final rule the FAA issued it as a final rule because they'd had plenty of input prior to that on which to base their change so way to go FAA yeah yeah it's just, the system does work on occasion that's right and thanks to our friends at EAA for calling our attention to that uh, little confusing Absolutely. thing and clarifying it for us and uh, we'll dig into the now that we've confused our listeners about the rotorcraft thing we will dig into the note a little <laughs> bit more and uh, perhaps our friends at EAA will set us straight on that one too that would be nice <laughs> What's next here? So uh, uh, one of the bits of news over the past week was Eclipse received uh, their production certificate uh, for their uh, for their. Uh, this is for the uh, the VLJ, right? And right, the uh, Eclipse yeah. 500. Now I'm. You guys know a lot more about this than I do. What's the difference between a production certificate and a type certificate? Type certificate uh, says the FAA has uh, seen the uh, test work, confirmed the the design and the engineering and the performance of an aircraft, and is uh, giving it a uh, type certificate, approving it to be flown by licensed pilots in the national airspace system. Uh, a production certificate, which uh, you might find interesting, some aircraft manufacturers operated without for years. Uh, gives the uh, manufacturing company the right to self-inspect and issue uh, com conformal type certificates to the aircraft that they've type certified. Uh, without a production certificate, a company can still build, uh, they can still manufacture a new aircraft uh, under their type certificate, but they have to have then an FAA inspector come by and inspect and approve each individual aircraft coming off the line as conforming with the, uh, uh, the type certificate. So uh, uh, a production certificate's a big deal. It yeah, well, that's, that, uh, yes. a lot, a lot of uh, economies of, of production involved and uh, uh, fewer delays waiting, for example, for the FAA to send somebody around and, 
I mean, having the FAA send somebody around is not free. No. Okay. The the companies pay for these guys to come and work on their premises uh, when they're working on behalf of the FAA away from their 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 base offices to do this kind of approval work. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's overlooked in the uh, FAA's idea that uh, wow we're getting a free ride on things here. Manufacturers really don't get a free ride on this, stuff. right? Uh, and it would seem to me that not only is it good, not only do these inspections cost money, they cost time, which is something you don't want to. You want to correct. You want to kind of, you know, get out of the process. Now, one of the best known, uh, longest uh, surviving companies in the general aviation community uh, operated for years without a production certificate. Uh, that's our good friends down in Kerrville, Texas, Mooney Aircraft. And it wasn't until the 19, in the 1990s, in the latter half of the 90s, that uh, Mooney finally went to the trouble and effort uh, uh, and expense to get a, uh, a, a production certificate for their product line. Uh, I did not realize that. I was down there uh, working on a story for uh, another overseas magazine doing a pilot report uh, when they were telling me how the uh, production certificate was uh, was new on site and they were now able to inspect and release their own aircraft and it's like wow you guys have been down here since like the 1950s <laughs> they've gone all those years without a production certificate on their models uh, but that was the case and uh, the, yeah. all that time they'd been building aircraft in, in, in lots and then uh, when they had so many on the ramp they'd uh, get the inspectors in and the inspectors from the FAA would, uh, you know, spend their time going over the airplane, signing off the paperwork, and then they went off to delivery to the various dealers uh, in the Mooney uh, uh, dealer network. So uh, it, it's not an absolute necessity, but as Jeb said, it, there, there's some real economies there uh-huh. yeah. in having a production certificate. And it yeah. means that Eclipse can inspect and release for delivery its own aircraft. Uh, and looks like they're soon going to start doing that yeah. in some larger numbers. So this is a very positive step forward for Eclipse and, uh, and, and, and a good sign. Now, n- n- And not to cast a pall on, on Eclipse's situation, but there was one other story, and I don't know whether this is a big deal or not, but there was this story recently about whether or not Eclipse's type certificate might have been issued to in, in a rush or something. You guys know what I'm talking about? And yeah. Is, oh, yeah. This, is this anything? Yeah. What, what's the deal? Well, set, let me set the stage a little bit. Um, of course, last year during AirVenture, uh, Eclipse was uh, um, granted a provisional type certificate for the Eclipse 500. That allowed them to uh, basically, um, as I recall, deliver an airplane um, subject to the provisions in the type certificate, which uh, there, there were s- several operational restrictions. I don't restrictions. think they delivered an airplane at the time. Well, that may be. I, th- I, th- I don't believe they delivered an airplane at the time. Uh, yeah, I, you, you're probably. It allowed right. them. The, the biggest thing it allowed them to do is to lay claim to being the first VLJ certified right. Right. in the field, right. uh, and they made a big deal out of it. They flew people in on a chartered 727 from mm-hmm. the factory in Albuquerque. Uh, they were running around the fields before the actual announcement, with T-shirts pronouncing that we'd done it, uh, and then. You know, we had the announcement with uh, the uh, Secretary of Transportation and the Administrator of the FAA and the head of Eclipse and and all that. And it was a provisional certificate that uh, said that the airplane was almost ready for prime time. And pick it up from there, Jeb. Yeah. Well, 
skip to September 30, uh, which is the date Eclipse was granted its full type certificate for the Eclipse 500. Well, not coincidentally, perhaps, um, September 30 also happens to be the last day of the federal fiscal year. And I, I, I will confess to, to realizing and recognizing the connection at the time, uh, but not having the, the time, resources, or really strong interest to follow up on it. Basically, the punchline is that, um, and I, I forget the organization or the specific individual uh, uh, making this accusation or charge, but apparently uh, someone is, is saying this week that the FAA, there's, there's no implication here that Eclipse is, is in any way at fault or uh, uh, involved in this decision, but that the FAA, for either political reasons or um, um, budget reasons, rushed through uh, on the last day of the federal fiscal year, Eclipse's type certificate. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. Was it NATCA? agreements on this. NATCA. Uh, well, explain to me, you seem to know more about this than I do. Explain to me then uh, NATCA's standing, for lack of a better word. Why does a bunch of controllers really care whether or not um, a type certificate that goes through certification and not air traffic, uh, why do they really care if whether or not this was pushed through? That you're going to have to ask NATCA. I haven't exactly connected those two dots yet. Yeah. But from the information that they've uh, released and it's been quoted in various news stories, uh, they had NATCA members that were inspectors involved in the process. And the inspectors were the ones that were surprised to wake up on September 30th. If I remember right, it was a Saturday, uh, which was what kind of caught the attention of, of some of these people mm -hmm. involved was, uh, you know, they went home on Friday and woke up on Saturday and found out that uh, their higher-ups had approved the type certificate and there had been a ceremony at Albuquerque to issue the type certificate to, to Eclipse Aircraft. Actually, you know, I think that was a Sunday. Could be right. Yeah. No, uh, let, me, let me load it, up something a weekend. quick and I'll go check. Anyway, uh, somewhere along the way, the, uh, the NATCA people just... Felt uh, from no, based right. on input a, from some of their Saturday. members. It was a Saturday. It was a Saturday. That's yeah. what I thought. But uh, the uh, the uh, people who were NATCA members apparently and involved in the uh, uh, process of uh, reviewing the uh, type certificate application and data, and they filed uh, agreements claiming that the uh, higher ups uh, kind of rush to get this done uh, for reasons not not clearly understood by me. Yeah. So it sounds like, although this is kind of an interesting little administrative and perhaps political soap opera, um, it, no one has suggested that I've seen, correct me if I'm wrong, no one has suggested that there are, are any safety ramifications to this. Yes? No, and, and, and I don't think anyone would. Um, yeah. The... Uh, I think I think the the political uh, aspect per here here is is the greater one. Uh, NATCA and FAA, of course, have have long been at loggerheads, and as um, uh, things heat up on both the user fee issue and reauthorization issue, and uh, uh, NATCA's contracting, uh, or NATCA's contract 
ratification issues, all of that is is going to get much more strident. Yeah, yeah. There's some ill will there because right. the uh, the FAA basically uh, got itself in a position to impose a final contract on the the, the, the controllers mm-hmm. uh, without their consent, without uh, what what controllers felt like was uh, uh, adequate uh, uh, negotiation. Yeah, and uh, the FAA didn't want to go through binding arbitration, and uh, Congress uh, let the law uh, exist in a way that let the FAA just say, hey, take it uh, or quit. And uh, since then, there have been a whole string of little things. Right. Uh, but in any event, the, the fact that Eclipse just got their production certificate is is, is a sign that they're moving ahead and yep, things absolutely. are going well. And it, It's a sign, I think, especially that... Uh, uh, there is nothing wrong with the airplane, yeah. and and that any any cloud that someone might ascribe to the uh, Eclipse 500 uh, type certificate should should not be there. There you go. And they've made progress in other areas too. They've got new training partners uh, announced here in the last week or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks ago, they announced they've got new avionics partners uh, that are going to be the, the suppliers for the uh, the panel. And uh, uh, all prior panels will be eventually retrofit with the new system. Uh, been a whole lot of been a whole lot of little incremental progress points made, and they've delivered a, uh, a handful of aircraft to different customers. Uh, prim- mm-hmm. Primarily, a, a, an operator that wants to get into the point-to-point taxi business. Uh, right. And uh, there's so, so, uh, a, a lot yet to be done. Yeah. So here, here's my question. Yeah. And again, without ascribing any any uh, any uh, anything towards Eclipse, when will the skies start to darken for all of these VLJs? Well, when's mosquito breeding season? Uh, uh, it's, it's coming up. I, I I really don't see the skies darkening scenario happening this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to quote a number because I'll get it wrong, but. Uh, uh, Eclipse's uh, 2007 delivery projections uh, reflect the, a little bit of the delays, but uh, they don't look to be getting to their full tilt level for another year or so. Yeah. Well, I think we we need to set our we need to set our listeners a task here. Then uh, we need to, you know, when 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 you folks first see an Eclipse jet or one of the other VLJs on the ramp of your local airport, we need you to report in and let us know. And, That's right. Uh, right now, that would be the either the Eclipse 500 or the Cessna Citation Mustang. Mm-hmm. Because right now, uh, unless I've missed some news this morning, those are the only two BLJs currently yeah. certificated and in delivery. Let us know when you see those and uh, snap a picture. We'll put it on our website or, yeah. or, or we'll point to it. number and make sure we know which airport and, and yeah. uh, what date and, and that kind of thing. Speaking of hearing from our listeners, we uh, so over the past almost a month now, we've been so kind of caught up in the whole sun and fun thing. And then we had some, we've had some really good guests on the podcast lately and fallen behind on, uh, on some of the listener emails that we've received. And, and I've got a bunch of them stashed away. And over the next couple episodes, uh, hopefully we can... And catch up with them all. Um, we really do love your feedback I and all uh, that pile stacking up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, that's so let me, why the airplane was flying so tail. There you go. <laughs> so let me uh, let me share a couple of them with you here this morning. Uh, this is the first one is from Michael from LVI. Now, this is a follow up email. Michael wrote to us once before. LVI. LVI right. is uh, where is LVI? LVI is upstate New York, right? That's what I want to say, but I'm not sure. 
All right. We should know these. I'll read the email while Jeb looks it up. And uh, Michael from LVI. Michael writes, uh, "Hello. I hope everyone is doing fine. Uh, And and Jeb, I hope your mom is doing well." He asks. Uh, He remembers that you were Ah. talking about your mom. uh, Well, she is, and thank you. For a refresher, my name is Michael from LVI, and I asked you if becoming a pilot was worth it, and you told me that the water is fine. So I made up my mind, and I'm getting naked and doing a cannonball into the water. (laughs) Perhaps too much information. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, we appreciate the enthusiasm, but that's an image that may stick with me for a little bit longer than I like. But uh, anyways, um, (laughs) terrific. That's great, Michael. Go for it. He says, "I've got the flying bug." He says, uh, "One day that I know I I will be up there flying." so I'm taking the idea that one of your other listeners, actually I think it might have been Dave um, that suggested this, of putting all my loose change in a jar uh, and uh, saving up for my flying lessons. He says, I'm also going one step further. He says, if, in, instead of buying stuff like movies and video games, I'm putting my money into that jar instead and hoping I will raise the money faster that way. He says, where I'm from, they have a college that has a commercial pilot program that I'm going to enroll in, and that way I can try and get grants and scholarships to help here for my training. He says, thanks for, the, thanks for the encouragement. Keep up the great podcast. It gets better and better every week. I can't wait to hear it. Your friend Michael from LVI. Where's LVI? Well, that, uh, Michael, you need to contact us again because I'm, I'm doing a, a search here on airnav.com for the identifier LVI and nothing comes up. I'll, I'll dig back into our old ones. Yeah. I, remember, I remember him writing to us before and I think he... In the it's other upstate ones, New York? I, that's what sticks in my head, but I could be completely wrong. All right, let me, Thank you, Michael. And need a K in front of it? Uh, well, yeah. I, but, I tried it both ways. Gotcha. This is a sort of a, a continuation of a, of a theme that another listener had uh, had, had named the, the frugal student pilot, and I have to say I, I was really amazed and have been amazed at how much um, uh, how this kind of struck a nerve, uh, uh, you know, uh, produced a lot of response from our listeners. The idea of finding uh, ways to to kind of manage the expense of learning how to fly, and uh, so I'd first of all love to hear more from other listeners who have come up with other creative ways to raise the money. Uh, uh, or lower the cost of learning how to fly and uh, we'll be sharing more and more of those with folks as time goes on. Um, It occurred to me to even try and kind of maybe get together with some of our uh, alphabet organization friends and see if maybe there's a program here that that uh, that might be an addition to one of the yeah. the, the you know get started flying programs. But uh, yeah, that'd be a good idea. But congratulations, Michael. Go for it. Uh, maybe not so much with the naked part, but uh, the <laughs> cannonball into the water part. Uh, we're with you. <laughs> we also got an uh, email a while back from uh, Ted from the Los Angeles area. Ted asks an interesting question here, um, and I, I've kind of trimmed this down a little bit, but it's still, well, let me just read it here as quickly as I can. Um, he says, hello, I really enjoy your podcast. It really helps with the morning commute. Uh, like many listeners, I think he listens to it on his uh, iPod or his, his digital music, uh, digital audio device while he drives to work. He says, uh, an issue I would be interested in hearing addressed on your podcast is the noise that GA airplanes produce. He uh, says, yes. I am a 300-hour private pilot who has built and is flying a Vans RV4 experimental aircraft. My home airport is... My home airport is Compton Woodley, uh, KCPM, in Compton, California. It's a great little uncontrolled airport in the middle of the L.A. megalopolis, but it is essentially bordered by homes on three sides. He says, I love the way my airplane performs, but I cringe every time I take off with a totally unmuffled 360 cubic inch engine. 
He says, uh, GA aircraft noise seems to be the elephant in the room that no one wants to admit is there. He says, every, he underlines, every pilot uh, thinks airplanes make too much noise, otherwise we wouldn't be spending up to $1,000 on a pair of headsets. I disagree with that slightly, <laughs> but he makes a point. Um, he says, but Say no. What? Say what? But no, yeah. But no manufacturer, <laughs> huh? but no Speak manufacturer, up. experimental or otherwise, seems to be devoting any design energy to solving the problem. I'm all for fr- flying quietly, quote unquote, by climbing quickly and avoiding overflight of noise-sensitive areas. But there has to be more we can do. My understanding is that new Boeing 787 and Airbus 380s had noise reduction as a major design requirement. I'd like to see the same thing from GA manufacturers. Uh, in uh, one of your podcasts, you spoke with an, a gentleman. He's talking about Dan Johnson. Uh, in Sebring um, regarding light sport aircraft. He mentioned that LSAs were flying around while he was talking, but they were so quiet they were getting drowned out by the race cars being tested. Is there a noise criteria for LSAs, he writes. And he says, uh, thanks again for the podcast. Ted from Los Angeles, California. So what's the deal with noise? Well, well, go ahead, Dave. A couple of things. Yeah, go. Somebody else talk about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A, there is no noise standard for LSAs that I'm aware of. Uh, I'm not aware I've of seen one. nothing in the consensus. They are just by their nature relatively quiet. quiet. They are by their nature relatively quiet, and uh, the dominant power plant, uh, and I feel like I can say this without getting uh, getting my beak, uh, you know, squished, uh, is the 912 uh, four-cylinder engine from Rotax. Uh, fairly mature engine, uses liquid-cooled heads, air-cooled barrels, uh, a gear reduction drive, a propeller speed reduction drive, if you will, uh, to slow the propeller RPM down from the engine RPM. And uh, it's come up uh, as an ultralight power plant, light experimental power plant, and, and it has been designed to be fairly quiet because the engine's made in Austria, and there are sound standards, noise standards for aircraft yeah. in Europe. That was one of the points I was going to make vis-a-vis LSAs, is that a lot of the LSA technology, a lot of the LSA standards are derived from existing European uh, technology. Mm-hmm. Um, Europe is much more noise sensitive than, are, than is the U.S. And uh, generally speaking, there are always going to be exceptions, but generally speaking, uh, anything that comes out of Europe is going to perhaps be quieter than something that comes out. In, in airframe and aircraft combinations that come out of Europe are going to be quieter than uh, uh, what comes out of the U.S. Well, in U.S. aircraft that that uh, are going to be registered in Europe, uh, sold and registered in Europe, uh, have to have meet to European noise standards. That's right to do so uh, and so there is you know thought and effort put into this and most of the manufacturers do not build a European version that meets the noise standards and a separate version for the US exactly. uh, by you know by a coincidence default or whatever uh, what meets the noise definition in uh, standards in Europe is what's sold here in the States so there has been some progress on that over the years but uh, the, uh, uh, another, the, the they're not going to. They're not getting quiet like the the, the Lexus or the Beamer that you right. you know that you, you see around the block. Another point, though, too, is that um, aircraft or let's say, let's restrict this to piston airplanes, for example. Um, the noise generated by a piston airplane uh, is is really not the exhaust system or the engine. It's the propeller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if um, you know, there are models of. Uh, Cessnas, for example, 
Um, I think there's one that, that is restricted to turn at 2,500 RPM. I think that's a later model. Uh, well, the, the new, the the quote, new, new 172, right. uh, the 160 horse mm -hmm. version, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, made 160 horse by propping it right. for, I believe it's a 2,500 RPM limit, like you said. Right. And uh, the 180 are, horse version of it turns 200, uh, 200 RPM faster with a different prop. Right, 2,700. There are, uh, uh, I think, the 185 Cessna turns at 2850 for takeoff uh -huh. and that is a loud sucker um there well, is been, been a lot there of is a, put into propeller design in the mm -hmm. last 10 years to make them quieter there is a i think a bonanza model uh there used to be a bonanza model let me put it that way that was for export to europe some country in europe at some point that was restricted to, I think, 2,500 RPM for noise reasons. Someone, f please feel free to correct or disagree with me on that. Um, the punchline is that it's the propeller. It is, it, that is really the noisiest generator uh, uh, on a piston airplane. Um, any, anytime you're at the airport, pay attention to aircraft as they go out. If, if you're lucky or unlucky enough to to have a big bore uh, Cessna single uh, go out, it's if it's not, especially if it's a uh, 185 or something like that, um, it is going to be much louder than say a Centurion or a, a 206 with uh, a turning at 2700 RPM. Um, noise mitigation practices uh, get as high as you can as quickly as you can. Uh, the higher you and are, back. and 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 then well yeah, there's there's couple of schools of thought on, on when to throttle back. Um, the higher you are, the less the, the noise impact. The greater the footprint, but the lower the decibels uh, that you're producing. Right, um, the sound pressure falls off exponentially. Exactly, exactly. Um, the other, uh, one school of thought on, on and we're, we're talking aircraft operation here as opposed, as opposed to noise mitigation. One school of thought with uh, um, aircraft equipped with constant speed propellers is to leave everything full forward um, not reduced to 25 squared for example as, as some people have been taught um, the idea being that the airplane is the airplane engine anyway is is happier at full throttle rather than uh, artificially reducing power for a variety of reasons not least of which is uh, uh, a lot of the fuel metering systems are set up to to add a little bit more fuel when everything's full forward keeping everything cooler uh, than when you might pull back the throttle a little bit or, ro or roll the prop back a little bit um, again that's an aircraft operation and management uh, uh, debate as opposed to a noise mitigation debate. Um, for noise mitigation, yes, uh, especially with a constant speed prop, you would want to pull that prop back. Uh, the, the rule of thumb is, is to 2,500 RPM uh, or, or, or a couple of hundred RPM, depending on the aircraft, uh, to, to reduce that noise impact. Um, noise has long been a, a problem for general aviation aircraft and, and even uh, more so for biz jets. Uh, it's interesting to note uh, and coming kind of full circle here on our conversation this morning, the Eclipse is perhaps one of the quieter aircraft in the fleet period. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it well exceeds existing stage four uh, noise requirements. Stage four is, is kind of the ultra 
quiet, and I'm not even sure that it's, that's it's, in in, it's in the newest uh, wide, standard. It's yes, not required it's, yet. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not the it's not required here in the U.S. It's the newest standard. I'm not even sure it's required in the, in Europe yet, but it is a standard. Whether it's it's in place as a requirement, I don't know. Um, as an aside, uh, when we were at Sun and Fun. Um, there were a couple of occasions where one of the Eclipse demonstrators was pulled out from the uh, uh, the display area and towed past the media center there and, and started up and taxied out. And other than the commotion that you saw of, of people milling around and, and the aircraft being towed out and, and uh, people getting out of the way and the motorcycles buzzing about with the flagman on them and whatnot, I don't recall hearing the damn thing start up. And taxi no. out. No, you, you, you it, it's, it's so as it's, close it's, to yeah. no sound impact yeah. as anything I've ever heard. It's it's like a, a, a distant vacuum cleaner, maybe, or in, in another the, room the, or down the hall. The Mustangs, right in the same ballpark. Yeah, uh, they, yeah. They, same basic. Yeah. An engine family. Uh, there's some, as Jeb was talking about, to operationally, there's some things that uh, can help out. Uh, but uh, we found that. Structurally, there were some things that we could do to the aircraft when we had our our, our, our little Comanche. Uh, we are you talking uh, about cockpit noise versus uh, uh, exposure on the ground? No, I'm talking about exposure on the ground. Okay. Uh, we had a uh, the original equipment uh, Hartzell steel hub two blade prop was on the aircraft when we bought it, and for a variety of practical reasons, uh, about a year later. Uh, we purchased uh, a new Macaulay three-blade prop that was uh, considerably shorter, uh, had aluminum hub, uh, strangely enough only weighed, I believe it was seven pounds more, the three-blade prop only weighed seven pounds more than the old two-blade prop that we took off. But the, uh, the noise impact of that new three-blade prop because of its shorter diameter, that means lower tip speeds, and the way the blades were cut, swept, and the cord varied on them. They were kind of a shimitar uh, sword shape. Uh, at idle, up to about 2,000, 2,200 RPM, the only noise that you really noticed out of that aircraft was exhaust noise. Mm -hmm. And even though the exhaust headers were routed through a big chamber, uh, it was more like a glass pack than an actual silencer. I mean, there were no baffles in it. Uh, well, there were minimal baffles in it and uh, and in a big heater muff around it and a three-inch exhaust stack that gave it a really deep, throaty sound. But we didn't realize how much quieter it was outside the aircraft, although we should have because how much quieter it was inside the aircraft. And so people started commenting, on the sound of our Comanche 250. <laughs> well, it was 180. They were crediting us with two cylinders that we didn't have based on the engine exhaust that they heard. You couldn't hear the prop. I, I, I was privileged to watch my airplane fly off in the hands of a friend a couple of times and was stunned at how much quieter it was watching it taxi out, listening to it take off and come back on approach, all because of a change to a far more modern propeller blade shape and sweep than what originally came on the airplane. Yeah. Uh, we were told that it was about a four decibel drop uh, in outside noise 
And then we insulated the hell out of the airplane with foam and glass and quarter-inch glass where it had been one-tenth of an inch originally and had the inside noise level down to a point where you could carry on a conversation without headsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it for a long period of time because it was still bloody loud. Yeah. But it was so much quieter than it had been before that you could take the headsets off, uh, turn the speaker on so that you didn't miss a radio call, and uh, fly along for a while on a hot summer day without your ears sweating. Uh, and that was a hell of an improvement. My instrument flight instructor was even pointing people to our airplane saying it was really quiet inside. It was quiet outside. So there's things that you can do for yourself. Uh, you know, I don't know if, uh, if our letter writers, uh, uh, RV4 has a, uh, fixed or constant pitch prop on it, but, uh, good three blade constant speed on that airplane might actually bring his noise footprint down if yeah. he doesn't already have one. Yeah. Well, we want to thank uh, thank uh, Matt and Ted, or excuse me, Michael and Ted, for uh, and their Ted. their emails. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and please, Ted, we think you're right. Airplanes could be a lot quieter they, than they, they could are. be, both in, in inside and outside. Yeah, yeah. and and it's wise for us. Made, but, uh, and it's it, wise for us all to kind of keep in our minds the fact that noise on the ground is one of the things that that we get taken to task for as as pilots and airports being attacked and so forth it's an important issue and it's, it's well, and i can't think of a pilot out there that wouldn't love the idea of being able to go without buying a thousand dollars set of a and r headsets yeah. for every seat yeah. airplane yeah. yeah anyways well let's move on here uh again thanks for the uh the listener email i uh, really appreciate folks. it keep it, off and, and keep let it us coming. know where lvi is or if we mistranscribed that's right. that or that's something right. because we can't find it and our Sometimes apologies for those always, of you that's not smart for those of you who've sent in already sent in some feedback we will get to you all eventually at least to uh, thank you for your emails if not to discuss what you write us about um it'll take us probably a couple more episodes to catch up um but don't stop sending in new ones we want to hear more and more don't despair we'll get there a couple of quick bits um i'm not going to read my long little uh, plug here but i do want to remind everyone to uh, please come and visit us at the uncontrolledairspace.com website uh, lots of fun stuff there and uh, uh we get we finally taught jeb how to actually make blog postings so <laughs> So, no, I, no, no. I'm no. so mistreated here. <laughs> Jeb finally set, settled down and figured it out, and uh, and now Jeb is is also adding uh, uh, blog postings there. So there's some fun stuff there. Things that don't make it into the podcast are are also there on the blog. Bloggermania. So, so check it out, um, and uh, other fun stuff at uncontrolledairspace.com. I also want to kind of kind of I'm kind of thrilled by this uh, that um, on. In the iTunes online store uh, that the uh, that you get to through your iTunes software, um, the podcasting the, the aviation podcast section has always been really neglected by by uh, Apple and the iTunes folks. Um, it had a very very simple, unattractive kind of interface, and it was hard to figure out which podcasts were most popular and which were interesting, and so forth and so on. And about a week ago. Uh, that's at least when I first discovered it. iTunes has uh, has dressed up the uh, aviation podcast section, so you can see all the little cover photos and get a better idea of which ones are the most popular and and uh, discover new aviation podcasts. So uh, I urge everyone to uh, to visit if you haven't recently in the iTunes online store uh, through your iTunes software. Um, it's under podcasts, and then sec- the larger section is games and hobbies, and then the subsection is aviation. And uh, we'll crow a bit 
bit by pointing out that um, as of this morning, um, in their list of the top aviation podcasts, we were number six, uh, although I would argue that we're a little higher than that. A couple of the podcasts that were higher than us on the list were actually travel podcasts, uh, and uh, they're kind of in the aviation section for some reason. So in terms of, of pure aviation podcasts, uh, as of this morning, I make us to be about number four, and uh, and we are definitely the top or maybe the number two uh, hangar flying podcast. Our friends at PilotCast have returned, and that's that's really nice to hear. Um, they had uh, been experimenting with other kinds of podcasts for some time now, um, an, an, an AME podcast and a CFI podcast, and uh, their uh, their hangar flying podcast hadn't been uh, been produced as often, and they seem to be back. Hopefully, they'll keep keep it up, um, but uh, we're right up there uh, with them as being one of the most popular hangar flying podcasts. So anyways, podcast that's... Popular. That's uh, that's us tuning our horn here. Please go check us out, and and if you're so inclined, add some feedback to the iTunes listing for our podcast, telling people what you think about what we're doing. Moving on, uh, so the the big serious bit of news uh, over the past week, uh, well, serious depending on how you measure these things, was that uh, the uh, I guess the first or one of the bills regarding user fees has been proposed, and uh, oh, we're starting man. to get a clear, a little bit more clear picture about what. Uh, how things might proceed, I, you know, and and you guys, and maybe perhaps Jeb in particular, are more up to speed on 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 how this all works and what's going on. Can you talk about it for a few minutes? Sure. Uh, well, of course, the House and the Senate uh, have they have their own separate committees and subcommittees tasked with developing, uh, in this case, uh, uh, new legislation to reauthorize the FAA, including uh, user fees. Uh, as as we've talked, I think in the past. Um, the House side has, has basically said that that proposal was dead on arrival. Uh, all it really needed was a proper burial. Um, the Senate, however, has been, um, shall we say, a little bit more cagey, perhaps a little bit more circumspect uh, with respect to its plans for the uh, uh, reauthorization process and, and user fees specifically. Um, I think I may have mentioned uh, um, several months ago, uh, I was at dinner with someone who should know, and and suggested that uh, the chairman of the Senate uh, Subcommittee on Aviation, uh, Senator Rockefeller of West Virginia, was keeping his options open on this and, and trying to craft this grand compromise of, of, uh, of things that would keep uh, both sides happy. And of course, compromises rarely keep both sides happy. They just annoy both sides uh, equal amounts. That's the most you can hope for. Yeah, that's the most you can hope for sometimes. Well, the news this week, and, and no one, to my knowledge, has really seen a, a, a black and white printed copy of this proposed legislation. Uh, but the news this week is that uh, the Senate side has developed or will be developing a bill that um, keeps in place the existing airline ticket tax, imposes a, um, is it a $25 uh, IFR flight plan fee, um, and increases the uh, Avgas fuel tax from 20-ish cents to 49-ish cents uh, per gallon. Um, the punchline in some of this is that um, piston aircraft would not be subject to the IFR flight plan filing fee and, and perhaps some other fees that, that are in this mix. Um, yet. Yet. is the Yeah. This is, uh, yeah, thank you. This is um, a classic um, uh, Compromise. It's a classic Rob from Peter to pay Paul. It's a classic uh, um, 
camel's nose under the tent uh, process. And my, my 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 favorite is classic divide and conquer. Well, and and that was that because was the final point. Because if you look point. at the details here. Mm -hmm. uh, the fuel tax, for example, would increase from, as Jeb says, 20-ish to 49-ish cents per gallon. For smaller turbine engine planes, uh, the proposal would not include any tax change, any tax or fee changes to planes that run on piston-propeller-driven engines. That means that uh, they're telling the vast majority of us, don't worry, we're not going to bother you. Uh, but then these fees would be, and, and, and fuel tax changes would be imposed on uh, the, uh, the airlines and corporate aircraft that run on turbofan uh, uh, turbo engines. Spit it out, David. Uh, there's something about exempting some smaller propeller-driven engines that run on turbine engines. I think they're talking about turboprops here. Yeah. Uh, but it looks to me like... You know, uh, to be fair to the to the senators, it's uh, Senator Rockefeller and Trent Lott from Mississippi, the Republican from Mississippi, that are supposedly working together to craft this. And compromise is a good description, but it also seems a little bit to me like let's split these guys off so that they don't have anything to oppose, and pick on the guys that can uh, you know that can be cast as bad guys, those rich guys with their jet airplanes. And uh, and maybe we can get this through uh, in a way that'll make everybody happy. Uh, I'll be surprised if it makes anybody happy. And I'm waiting with bated breath for some of this afternoon's press releases to come out from the alphabet groups on the GA side of this to see how they dismember this idea. Right. And, and it would seem to me, though, the, the important thing to take away from this is that uh, it, it's important to not say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go with this compromise because it's not as heinous as the, as the big proposal and, and, oh, it doesn't really affect us down here in piston-powered GA as much, so we're going to, yeah. like, accept this. Because the important thing here is that this kind of sets the precedent and puts a lot of the, the processes in place and will make it that much harder for us us to fight these things off in the future, right? I think exactly that's right. I think that's a good assessment, Jack. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, you so know. so don't compromise now because what this really is is this is the Trojan horse that is just kind of then leaves the the whole big bad ugly user fee thing that much closer and that much more dangerous. Yeah, two well, additional. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. No, well, two two additional points. Um, this particular news blurb, which came out of uh, the Air Transport Association's uh, daily newsletter. Uh, yesterday um, says that uh, it's it's Senator Rockefeller and Senator Lott uh, who are putting this this proposed package together. Uh, they will quote plan to introduce a bill this week unquote. Um, Rockefeller is chairman of the Senate Aviation Subcommittee. Lott is the ranking member, i.e., the senior senior Republican on that subcommittee. So that that says that they've gotten together and and that's the leadership uh, position that they're going to try to implement and move forward with. Uh, the second important point here from a, this is kind of gets into strategy and whatnot, is that if the Senate does in fact uh, adopt that legislation, it will differ sharply probably. Uh, it's too soon to tell, but uh, I think it's, it's safe to say it will differ sharply from whatever the House passes. So the, the two will be uh, at odds uh, um, 
when when both both houses of Congress act, and um, uh, it will come down to a a, uh, a conference committee action, which. Uh, uh, is both good and bad. In the, in the past, uh, there's been a lot of shenanigans that could occur in a conference committee. Um, uh, under the new regime here, uh, it's not clear to me uh, that, the, that those shenanigans might continue. So yeah. uh, We could hope that the change in uh, the majority in Congress might have changed that bad habit because for the last six years, there's been a great deal done in conference committee, not by lawmakers, but by staff. Right of lawmakers, sometimes committee chair people and sometimes uh, uh, majority leadership that have just inserted things into uh, uh, pending legislation that the uh, chamber members then voted on without ever knowing that the changes had been made. Right. And uh, it's kind of uh, black magic democracy. Uh, You get to vote on something, you don't get to know what it is. Yeah. Well, long-time listeners know that we can talk about this for a long time. We, we can just go on and on about this, and maybe we shouldn't this morning, especially since the story is still developing. Um, but as Already I said... the Airport Council International is uh, deriding the Senate reauthorization bill as missing an opportunity to do better for airport development funds. So yeah. I think that's, I think that's going to be the leading edge of what you're going to hear more of in the coming days. Right. And I think, as I said before, and I think you guys were saying too, the, 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 the real takeaway at this stage of the game is don't think that, oh, good, they're compromising, the pressure's off. This is no. not a good compromise. I, we believe, or I believe, not, that you should oppose yeah. this compromise. Not only is this not a good compromise, it's, it's good for, I think, general aviation uh, from the standpoint that this finally gives the industry something tangible, something tangible in in addition to the FAA proposal, which most have, as I say, declared dead on arrival. It it uh, it provides a uh, a new target uh, yes. against which we can lobby and work again, uh, work to to uh, defeat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a good thing, all things considered. Okay. Uh, it, it will show uh, the Senate and, and uh, Senators Rockefeller and Lott that, no, we're, we're not really willing to accept this kind of a compromise. Yeah. yeah the idea that, uh, that somehow those, you know, rich guys in their business jets aren't a part of general aviation, that uh, we don't we among the great unwashed piston flyers don't occasionally move up to that and or ascribe to that that those guys didn't start down here that a lot of those guys don't still fly down here like we're some distinct population uh, i find a little bit insulting yeah. uh, that that they think we would buy into that right. uh, we're not going to bother you we're just going to buy those bother those rich guys that y- you don't have any in- anything to do with that's right more on this later boy we're running really long we're having way too much fun this morning uh let's see if we can wrap this thing up there's a couple of quick things uh, the uh um sadly we you know of the week what's that we're going to do the off-field landing. We are going to do the off-field landing. Let's, let's quickly touch on this. It's probably a bigger story than we have time to talk about this morning, but it is of note. We, about, uh, I don't know, a month or so ago, uh, when James Winbrandt was on uh, uh, the podcast, he gave us a pilot report from a visit to New Orleans where he told us some sad stories about the state of uh, the aviation infrastructure down there. Um, yeah, and we're now seeing um, a, a very concrete example of this in that uh, NBAA, the National Business uh, Aviation yeah. Association, Association has correct. decided to uh, move their uh, their annual convention away from New Orleans, where it was scheduled to happen, and I guess they're taking it back to 
to uh, Orlando this year. This is, no, 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 this, this is 08. This, this is 08. They're in Atlanta this year. Atlanta. Right. But they're taking it out of uh, New Orleans, right? They're taking it the 2008 convention out of New Orleans and, uh, and, and, and placing it back in Orlando. Thank you. I stand corrected. It's a very sad situation in New Orleans. and just It is a- really sad, and it's a big disappointment, uh, once again, to not be able to go to NBAA. Uh, in the yeah, in, 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 yeah, in, in it New is one of the one of the more enjoyable venues, one of the more enjoyable experiences uh, on the NBAA circuit. And nothing against the nice folks down in Orange County, Florida, but uh, you know, after so many years in the uh, new addition to the Orange County Convention Center, uh, parking in the same lot, getting stuck in the same traffic on International Boulevard, it starts to get a little monotonous. Uh, but there are so few places in the country that can handle a convention of the size mm-hmm. and technical complexity of the NBAA meeting that uh, this is what we're reduced to. So, yeah. so this is yet another area where you can contact your uh, elected representatives and urge them to help New Orleans. It's not just an aviation thing, of course. There's, there's a lot of bad stuff still happening down New in New Orleans. Orleans. lakefront is still uh, uh, struggling to come back. Uh, they're rebuilding the millionaire FBO there. Uh, uh, based aircraft are down. Uh, there was a lot of damage to the infrastructure and flooding. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, this, this impinges on business in the French Quarter in particular. Right. Uh, and the convention center neighborhood adjacent to it. And those were areas of New Orleans that suffered little or no damage from Katrina and the flooding that came along afterward. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the, the French Quarter was high and dry. Uh, yeah. One one final point, Jack, and I know you're in a hurry. <clears throat> um, New Orleans Lakefront, I, I landed there in late uh, 01 uh, for that, uh, that year's NBAA convention, and uh, there were... Uh, I don't know, two or three, maybe four uh, discrete FBOs on the field. Uh, it was uh, all the runways were in operation. There was an ILS. Dynamic. Place. It was very dynamic, very um, bustling uh, airport. With, even without the, the NBA convention, you could tell that uh, uh, some some serious uh, general aviation was going on there. And uh, only to, a $20 cab ride down, right. to, the, down to Bourbon Street. That's right. Today, the tower, the control tower, remains closed. Uh, runway 18 left and 36 right remains closed. Um, the uh, There's a 500-foot portion of the remaining runway, 18 right, 36 left, that is closed. Um, airport obstruction lights are out of service. And there's no ILS uh, serving that airport now. Um, it's just beyond my imagination that the FAA uh, and and other entities uh, have not gone in there and straightened that airport up, and and helped um, that community and, and that city uh, try to regain its former glory. It, it's just beyond my comprehension. Yeah. Well, it's just a, it, it's it's just a continuation of what's been uh, a, a foobar uh, <laughs> from the very beginning. Of of re- it, yeah of, of the Katrina Orleans, recovery yeah the post Katrina right. recovery yeah. Yeah. it's been foobard from the start yep and uh, you know if you don't know what foobar means 
You have to look it uh, up. You know, somewhere. watch Band of Brothers. Yeah, there you right. go. There you All right, we do need to move on here. Let's see. On a, on a much more upbeat note, uh, let's see now. We got the uh, Private Ryan. So I've been doing my uh, my off field landing of the week thing, and uh, what you guys may not realize is that so we actually got a listener sent this one in. All right, <laughs> um, we got uh, an email from uh, Matt Kunkel uh, who uh, po- called our attention to this uh, particular off field landing of the week, and I'm going to ask you guys to help me. Do you have it on your screen? I do. Uh, have I, I'm working on the in the in the uh, the, uh, this the, is the backup. News. This yeah, is this my is a... my backup mission control here, and so I can't call this up on my screen. Can one of you kind of summarize that story, is a, which is, is very Yahoo very New- cool? This is a Yahoo News item from from the AP. Uh, New Mel or New Melly, Missouri. Seventy-eight uh, year old grandmother Emma Hanner uh, suffered only a cut on her nose. After the engine in her 1970 Grumman AA-1 stopped in flight, um, she, it just quit, quote unquote, said said Hanner, uh, who was recently moved to Denver from the Lexington, North Carolina area. Um, <clears throat> she was ferrying the airplane. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, her airplane or or someone else's airplane ferrying the airplane uh, uh, back to Denver. Um, she says, in, four, in nearly four decades of flying, the 78-year-old grandmother had never before made an emergency landing. Um, she flies a couple of times a week and plans to fly again. Da-da-da-da-da. Uh, uh, FAA is investigating. Um, there you go. Uh, so, or, or emergency landing of the week. Yep. Emma? So, you know, you get the pilot of the week right. award for or the That's pilot right. of the month award for April, as far as I'm concerned. That's and, right. and if any of our listeners know uh, uh, Miss Hannah, Miss Hannah, excuse me, um, uh, please convey to her uh, our congratulations and and job well done. And uh, we'd love to hear more about this from her. Absolutely, we'll put a link to that story uh, in the show notes so you can take a look. That's our off-field landing of the week. Last thing on my list, uh, Dave. This is a sounds like a cool airport. You posted this, I think, on the blog. Um, about uh, Lee Bottom Field. Uh, you, you described it, or someone described it, as the neatest little grass strip ever. And I went and looked at their website, and it does look really cool. I want to go does. there. It does. They got some really neat photographs. Yeah. Uh, Dave, tell us about this there. airport. This is your old stomping ground, right? Yeah, this is, uh, this is uh, Lee Bottom is in southern Indiana, near Madison. And uh, uh, right next, nestled up to the edge of the Ohio River, uh, about oh I don't know, 35 miles upriver from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it is a grass strip, uh, just a wonderful little grassroots airport. And every year they have a uh, a uh, a special fly-in. Uh, they call it the uh, uh, grass tube and rag fly-in, if I remember right. I'm looking at it here on the website, and I don't see the uh, yeah, I think it's listed under events. It looks like a really cool, and they've got they've got the periodic little fly-in events throughout mm-hmm. the year, and that looks really cool. One thing that was really wood, neat is wood fabric and tailwheels fly-in is going to be in sept- on September 29th this year. They have this cool little cabin that you can rent. Uh, that so you, so you want to fly in for the weekend or whatever, um, and it's this little wooden cabin that's like one room with a bed and a, you know a sink, and apparently there's uh, some facilities nearby, and uh, you know. 
you want to fly into this cool little airport for the weekend, you can call ahead and uh, rent the cabin for like, I think it said $35 a night or something like that's that. Cool. And uh, that's a great idea, actually. I don't know. Uh, uh, that's just an interesting idea for all sorts of uh, fun little airports is to just have a little simple little cabin so people can come in and spend the night. And uh, So that's Lee Bottom Field uh, in Indiana. And again, we'll put a link to their website uh, in the uh, show notes. But uh, uh, it, I want to go there. It's a great little event. It's worth, you know, if you're passing through the area, uh, it's worth a little diversion there. Uh, they've got a 4,100 foot by 100 foot wide grass strip. Uh, it's uh, uh, just a marvelous little place, a little bit like flying back in time. Uh, it's very busy over the weekends. Uh, it's a short hop into the uh, historic town of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Madison, Indiana. Uh, uh, the closest, uh, yeah, I think the mailing address there is actually Hanover, Indiana, which is a small college town, uh, also right on the Ohio River. Lovely countryside, rolling hills. Uh, the bottom is really, Lee Bottom is really in the river bottom. Uh, you walk across the, the strip and through the trees there a little bit, and boom, you're on the north shore of the Ohio River. Yeah. So it's worth stopping by, check out their website. Uh, you can sign up to their Nordo News uh, newsletter. Uh, and uh, learn about the happenings there, fundraisers, uh, get some political opinions, uh, progress on different projects that the people are involved in there. Uh, if you stop by, tell them that uh, a fellow Hoosier sent you by. There you go. Yeah. And listeners, if you know of any other uh, cool airports, if you visited one or if you're based at one uh, uh, that uh, is particularly charismatic or fun or that you just love it so much, uh, uh, send us an email or send us a call our listener line and leave us an audio comment about your favorite airports around the country. Well, that's it. Boy, we've run really long here. Any, any yeah. quick shout-outs that you just can't wait till next time? Well, uh, first Saturday of the month is a couple of days away. That means Ponca City, Oklahoma. Ponca City, Oklahoma. <laughs> We're going to figure out how to do this podcast from the Ponca City Pancake Breakfast oh, one of these yeah. days. Take my that word for it. That is a great idea. I don't exactly know how we're going to work this out, but we're going to make it happen. And uh, that, Av- Avgas will be involved. That's right. Avgas will be involved, as will copious amounts of tang and fresh coffee. So stay tuned for that. I want to thank you guys. Uh, learn more about Dave and, and all his work at uh, DaveHigdon.com and Jeb Burnside at AviationSafetyMagazine.com, AvWeb.com, and JebBurnside.com, and me <laughs> at uh, JackHodgson.com. Uh, and, of course, visit all of us and check out the blog at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, guys, and uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Happy happy flying, everybody. Shiny side up. Get some airtime. Dirty side down. What a beautiful noise Coming up from the street Got a beautiful sound It's got a beautiful It's a beautiful noise Going on everywhere You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com 